Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. Whether you're here in the worship center, online, or in the CLC, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Sophie Greer, and I'm a senior in high school. I've been so incredibly blessed with this church and this youth group, and I hope this morning you were blessed just a little bit too. When Adam Prophet first asked me if I would speak at Student Takeover, I was ecstatic, like jumping up and down, screaming excited. I was standing outside the Westridge gym before a volleyball game, and everyone who walked by probably thought I was insane, but that's okay. Since this is the 152nd anniversary of First Christian Church, I want to talk about a character whose story was told here almost a century ago. Like, sliced bread wasn't even sold in stores when this sermon was preached here. This character can often be overlooked, and he is the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You might know this story fairly well, or you may have never heard of it. If that's the case, I'm so honored to be the one to get to tell you about him. It is often used as a representation of what happens when we accept God's forgiveness, and that is exactly what it is. The parable of the prodigal son is one of the best representations we have of what happens when we return to God his mercy and forgiveness. This story is illustrated in Luke 15, 11 through 24. In front of you, there are Bibles in the backs of your seat or you can pull out your phone, your own Bible, whatever you have. But we'll be in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. We will stay in Luke 15 the whole time. So no, don't worry, no flipping. Verse 11 says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. This is the turning point in the story of the younger brother. Pay attention to this and remember it for later. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a picture of what happens when we turn to God. When we decide to live our lives according to our own will, we end up pawning our lives away and living as a slave to our choices. Remember that turning point in verse 17? My goal for this, or my hope for this rather, is that this morning can be a turning point for you as well. If you are in a place where you have strayed from God's house, I want you to know that God is just hoping that you will return the same way that the younger brother did, with humility and repentance. No matter what, God will receive you with mercy. And for some of you, this is the most important thing you need to hear me say today. 
Some of you need to hear that no matter what season of faith you are in, God will come running down the road to meet you. There is no condemnation. It can be scary to return for fear of shame, but the father in this story reminds us that God will never ever meet you with the expectation of having to earn back his love. God comes rushing to you with that unconditional love the father showed the younger brother. All that matters is that you came home and God will rejoice for that. If you need to receive God's mercy, you're in great company because we all need God's mercy and I think some of us are pretty great. If that is where you are today, that is the importance of this parable to you. That is what I want you to walk away remembering today, that God loves you, he wants you home, and he will receive you with mercy. If you're not in that place, that's okay. You might need the message of mercy that came to the older brother in this parable. When I first started preparing for this message, Adam Prophet and Ethan Magnus took us to the archives at Milligan. These archives were of an influential pastor from the 1920s and 30s, you know, before sliced bread, who preached here. His name was, you guessed it, Will Sweeney. If you've ever had a conversation with Ethan Magnus, you know that Will Sweeney is his favorite celebrity. And shocker, he's a pastor. Now, these archives are not what I was expecting. I thought we would go to the Milligan Library, go to a computer lab, and use the control F function to find what we were looking for. That's how I've done research my entire life. But when we got to the Milligan Library, we walked past all the computer labs, down the stairs to the basement, and we, went, we were greeted by this room of boxes and boxes and boxes of folders. And we were told to filter through them one by one and find a sermon that spoke to us. The sermons of Will Sweeney were written on pieces of paper folded into thirds that looked something like this. As you can see, they're very, very hard to decipher. Most of the time, Ethan and Adam were the only ones that could read them. But this one was preached here on April 2nd, 1922. And this is the inspiration for my message today. And I think it's honestly pretty cool that the same message that was relevant 100 years ago is still relevant today. And this relevance is a testament to the fact that God still works in the same way. A hundred years is a long time for us as humans, but God's message never changes. Sweeney here focused on how the older brother had a misconception about the relationship between him and his father, and then how we have a misconception about the relationship between ourselves and our father, God. The older brother thought perfect rule keeping was the only way to earn the inheritance his father had promised him. The son thought he could earn his inheritance by being better than his younger brother. And in his own mind, his superiority was solidified when he heard about how his younger brother had spent the inheritance he was given. Sweeney really, really focused on the older brother here, which is very different than how most people approach this parable. We'll read about the, younger, the older brother continuing in the same chapter in verse 25, saying, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the cat and fat, you killed the fattened calf for him. What the heck, dad? <laughs> he didn't actually say that, but I can imagine that's what he was thinking. Here, the older brother is like a little kid sitting outside the door of a party. He has his ear pressed up against the door. He's peeking through the window, really, really, really wanting to know what's happening, but hoping nobody sees him. He's watching everything from afar. It's easy to judge the older brother here because we think, why is he angry? He should just go in the party. He should rejoice for his younger brother. Nothing's stopping him. It's not like he isn't welcome, but there is something stopping him, and that is his pride. When we take a step back and look at our own lives, we see how much we act like the older brother. We begin to see how jealous we are when we think that we did this better than someone else. We are jealous when we see God bless someone we deem less faithful than us because we think we deserve it more. We are so judgmental that often our reaction is, they still get a party after that? And I don't get one after I've done all of this? Will Sweeney put this into words best in one of his points, saying that the older brother claimed recognition for his service. This means that the older brother wanted to be glorified for what he had done in the past. He wanted to be told that he was better than his brother. As an older sister, I have done this more times than I would really like to admit. Um, I have two younger brothers, and when we were in elementary and middle school, I was really, really obsessed with my grades, and I'm not particularly proud of the way that I handled our report cards. When we got report cards, you know, you have to bring them home and get them signed so your parents know how you're doing in school. So when I brought mine home with higher scores than my brothers, I thought I would get more reward from my parents. Now, don't get me wrong, my brother's scores were amazing. They were passing all of their classes. I was just a perfectionist about it all and thought I was better than them. <laughs> but my parents, every single time, took us all out for the same amount of ice cream. They threw the same party for all of us. And I was the older brother. I was jealous because I was prideful. A famous Bible commentator by the name of Leon Morris once said, the proud and the self-righteous always feel they are not treated as well as they deserve. The proud and the self-righteous always feel they are not treated as well as they deserve. I acted this way. I thought I was being treated unfairly at the ripe old age of seven. I was not. <laughs> I had lost sight of what was really important that all three of us were doing exceptionally well in school. I lost sight of the joy of all of that. The older brother acted this way as well. He thought he was being treated unfairly because he did not receive the recognition he thought he deserved for it. He lost sight of the joy of a returning child. The older brother wanted to be praised. He made himself the one who deserved the glory. What about you? Where have you decided that you were more deserving than other believers? In what areas have you decided that your party deserves more balloons and streamers or ice cream? On the scale of salvation, how much higher do you rank yourself than those around you? And why? Why is that? Is it because you have more community service hours logged or you spend more time in the church building or you don't openly struggle with the same temptations you see people around you fall into? What is it? I hate to burst your bubble, but everyone gets the same party. 
no matter how long you've been faithful. Have you lost sight of the joy of this? Have you forgotten to be joyful when other people are forgiven? Even if you do celebrate others, will you accept the same grace for yourself? Or are you forcing yourself to stand outside the door until you prove that you deserve to be in the party? This approach does not work. I hate to break it to you, but it really doesn't. You're not supposed to walk into the party because you earned it or you deserve to be there. You are supposed to walk into the party because of the gifts that Jesus has given you and the love of your father. The older brother is stuck trying to earn his way into the party. And you may be stuck in the same place, trying to earn your way into the party by doing something of your own strength. God doesn't work like that. God does not keep a checklist or a scorebook. He's not waiting for you to clean up your life. All we have to do is surrender and receive. The kind of obedience Jesus desires is surrendering to him, not following a checklist. It's easy to judge the older brother for following a checklist before we realize that we follow one of our own. Now, before Jesus even begins this parable, he categorizes the brothers with comparisons people during this time could understand. In the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses one and two say, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They were appalled at this. The tax collectors and sinners were considered dirty and unclean during this time period. The connotation that these people had translated into today's terms would be like, um, let's see, untrustworthy politicians and... Alabama fans. On the other hand, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were self-righteous and thought they did not need grace because they were good where they were. They are represented by the older brother. The Pharisees, even though they get a bad rap, they were actually great moral people. They were the good guys of their culture. They were obedient to God's word. They attended church and worship. They prayed over one another. Um, They were generous to the poor. All the things that you're supposed to do on the checklist of being a follower of God. The problem with the Pharisees lies in their intentions. They performed these works and made a spectacle of themselves to show how righteous they were, not how righteous God made them to be. They are the widely proclaimed bad guys of the Bible because they did not think they needed the grace of God. Like the elder brother, they thought they deserved to be at the party. If we realize we're like the older brother, we also realize that we kind of act like the Pharisees. And many of us have spent our entire Christian lives judging the Pharisees for what they did in the story of Jesus. But to realize that we're like them? Oh man, that kind of stings, doesn't it? Think about the ways that you've decided you are better than other Christians, just like I was with the report cards. Think about times when others were blessed and you thought you deserved it more. You think you can earn your salvation, but if that were true, God would have never sent Jesus down to earth. If God thought in terms of measurable accomplishment, he would have no desire for us to even be at these parties in the first place. There's once again a perfect representation of God's response to our pride in verses 31 and 32 of the same chapter, Luke 15 in your Bibles. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you notice, we, this is the end of the story. We never really know if the older brother goes back to the party or if he stays outside and keeps working. And this is very, very intentional. Jesus did this on purpose. He wants the reader or the listener during that time to make a decision about what they are going to do with this new conviction that they were given. Do you go back to the party and rejoice or do you stay outside? This moment right now for each and every one of us is a cliffhanger. You are standing at a fork in the road and you get to decide the direction that you go. One road leads to a party with lots of laughter and joy and the other leads to a life of prideful isolation. Now, don't be disheartened because there is still a party to go to and you are invited. The older brother desperately wants to take his ear off the door and experience the party for himself, but his pride will not allow it. Where will your pride not allow you to go? This is a party for people who are made righteous, not those who are self-righteous. This is a party for people who recognize they need Jesus for salvation, not the ones who think they can earn it all on their own. This is a party for people who know they have messed up and recognize that Jesus is the only one who can redeem them. This is a party for those who are heartbroken and know that nothing they do on their own will heal the hurt like Jesus can. This is a party for those who are tired, tired of trying to prove themselves to God like they prove themselves to others. If you're in this boat, once again, you are in great company because we are all either the older brother right now or we will be at some point. Jesus does not want your resume of good deeds and obedience. He wants your surrender. All of me is welcome, except for my pride. And all of you is welcome, except for your pride. Isn't it amazing that God allows us the opportunity to choose to be joyful for others? I really hope you don't sit outside with your ear pressed against the door, longing to be courageous enough to lay your pride on the doormat and go inside. I hope you are inside the party, dancing, laughing, eating, and singing with others who get to share in the grace of God with you. Someone that I've had the privilege of sharing in the grace of God with is Savannah Harris. She's going to tell you how to live once you actually get inside the party. Good morning, church. I'm Savannah Harris, and I'm part of the high school group here. I'm honored to be up here for student takeover for the 152nd birthday of First Christian Church. Our church's birthday, we went to the archives of William Sweeney, who served here about 100 years ago. After looking through folder and folder and folder of sermons that no one could read, but Ethan Magnus himself, I'd love to share something surprising I found in our research about Jesus. Now we know so many things, like he was born of a Virgin Mary. He walked on water, rose from the dead, fed the 5,000, turned water into wine. And even though he did all these big and amazing things, he did them for others, for the people around him. Jesus said he himself came to serve. An all-powerful king came down to the lowest level of human and served. We can look at examples in the Bible, like John 13. And you can pull out your Bibles with me. It was the feast of, feast of Passover in the last hours before his time on the cross. 
He wanted to be with his disciples to serve and prepare them for what was to come. He was the best teacher to be. He did by action. He showed this in a way by getting up from supper and starting to wash the disciples' feet. Now some of them, mainly Peter, was against Jesus, their teacher, washing their feet because it should have been the other way around. He thought he should have been washing Jesus' feet. But Jesus wasn't taking no for an answer. He washed them until they were shining. And I mean shining like John Emmert's head. Here's a picture of John Emmert, in case you've never met him, or if you've just been living under a rock. Now we can look at John 13, 12 through 17, where it says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that I know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now, he was washing their feet as an example of servanthood, because he, we can all bet he didn't have to wash their feet. He chose to. Jesus was and is a perfect example of the servanthood and loving leadership, giving himself completely to his work. He calls us to the same thing he did because anything we do for each other that washes away the grime of the world and dust of defeat and discouragement is foot washing. He calls us here on earth to be servants like him, serving in the world in the posture that Jesus did when he was here. He wants us to go serve with ready and humble hearts. And we can also look at Matthew 10, 24 and 25, where it says, the student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. Now we are definitely no better than Jesus because he ultimately knows more than us. And if he serves, then we should follow because he knows what's up. So we can't say Jesus did that, but we don't have to because we should also do it as well. This is the goal for both disciples and servants of Jesus. He calls us to be representatives of God and to live like him. Now in the archives, I found this sermon where Sweeney talks about three points of being servants like Jesus that really stuck out to me. Serve like him, suffer like him, and live like him. Now he talks about how we are called to be servants of Christ, we will serve like Jesus. Jesus actually expects us to have the same posture in the world he did. Now we aren't always asking the world to do things for us, but we are going to do things to and for the world. Like Jesus hung out with people that no one would even look at. He looked out for the hurting and the sick. He forgave people others wouldn't. And this is where we can go out in our lives and forgive the ones that have hurt us. He fed the hungry, and there's so much hunger in this world that we could go out and help them. We could even sit with people who sit alone at lunch or buy someone's coffee one day. Like, I could go on for hours. But if we're going to serve like Jesus, servants of Jesus, we will serve like Jesus. Sweeney's second point shows that there's also a downside to all this, where we will also experience suffering like Jesus did. I think Sweeney's right when he says sometimes if we are servants like Jesus, we will suffer like him because our world is dealing with a lot of issues and moving in a lot of different directions that are different from what Jesus calls us to. We are called to walk in the direction of obedience to Christ while everyone else is walking the other way. And it definitely doesn't come without consequences. So I think just because you find yourself suffering for your faith here and there doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It means you could actually be doing something right. I think Sweeney could have been onto something that if we are servants like Jesus, we will serve like him and suffer like him too. Now it reminds me of a song, Christ Be Magnified. Because toward the end of it, it says, and I won't sing it for you, I promise. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. 
These lyrics show how if Jesus suffered and got treated a certain way, we probably will too, but that shouldn't stop us from serving him and his people. Because at the end of it all, we will rise and we will rise with him. Which is Sweeney's third point, that the good news in all of this is that as servants of Christ, we get to live like Jesus. And of course, it's how we live every day, but it also means we get to live eternally, to live in a way that glorifies God. It means we even may live in a way that makes a difference and brings hope to someone else. So if we're going to be servants like Jesus, we will serve like Jesus, probably suffer like him, but we also get to live like him. From the last point of Sweeney, we can also look at 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him if we endure. We also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us if we are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This principle assures us that in our present difficulties or trials, it's worth enduring, because the reward is greater than what it might be from quitting. And when we live as servants of God, Paul says we get a new job title, as ambassadors of Christ. We look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the creation has come, the new is The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave him the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we may become the righteousness of God. Now this tells us we first need to accept Christ over the worldly values to become new. And he will make us a new creation to use us for his ministry. Made to be an ambassador of Christ so that we may live in the righteousness of God. Now when I look at the word ambassador, I think of a clothing ambassador. Where they post and show the clothes off to show everyone how they should buy this brand's clothes. And they're the ones who represent the company in public or on social media or wherever they may go. They're the face of that brand. Now I know Paul definitely wasn't talking about a clothing ambassador, but probably more like a political ambassador. People who go out and represent a state or country to another state or country. For example, an ambassador of France for the US would live in France and tell them all about the US. So if anyone wanted to know anything about the US, they would go to this person. So as ambassadors of Christ, we live here on earth and speak and show Christ. People would come to them to find out who God is. Paul says that we are that for Jesus. You are Christ's ambassador, which means that you represent Jesus wherever you go. I want you to think to yourself, where are you an ambassador of Christ? Where are you an ambassador of Christ? Is it your first period calc class or your soccer team? I know some of you may be on a soccer team, And it's like being an ambassador going to France. You've been invited to go to that soccer team, but your job there isn't soccer player, it's to be an ambassador of Christ. Maybe it's your own family. Some of you in your family are a grandmother or grandfather, mother or daughter, and that's what you think your main job is in that family. Hate to break it to you, but you're wrong. Your first job in that family is to be an ambassador for Jesus. Everywhere you go and show up is where you are servant of Jesus, you will serve like him, and that makes you an ambassador. Now it hit me the other day in my art class that I'm the ambassador. My role isn't to go paint and draw all day. My role is to be an ambassador of Christ. When my table wants to know anything about Jesus, even down to what color eyes he may have had, they come to me. 
Now, sometimes I don't always remember to be one, but I've been trying harder, especially since starting this sermon. And I knew I was trying my best to be an ambassador of Christ one day when my friend came up to me and said, you would be the reason I came back to church. Now, yes, even being told after this, I've messed up. But through it all, I've been so blessed to be able to be used for God's work as an ambassador of Christ in that APR class. Now, I also know you're all asking yourself the same question an nine-year-old boy asked me at work the other day when discussing if Jesus would listen to the same music he would. Spoiler, he definitely wouldn't. Now, how can I be like God if he is perfect? I can never be as perfect as him. And you're right. This little boy was right. We will never be able to fulfill the part of our calling to serve perfectly, but we still serve. We can try our best, and as long as we are serving, we are showing the same humble, sacrificial love as Jesus did to others around him. Now, it may not always be fun or bring us happiness, but as Sweeney said, that's the fate we live with. And it pleases God, fulfills his calling, and brings blessing and happiness to him. We are called to be the best ambassadors we can because the world is in desperate need. The world needs to know Jesus. Now, I bet when you walked into church this morning, you didn't know you were getting a new job. Your job now, wherever it may be, at lunch today with your small group, dinner with the relatives, school tomorrow, is to be an ambassador of Christ. It's your opportunity right now to represent Jesus to everyone. Someone out there is looking at you to figure out who God is. And I believe every single person in the room right now, in the CLC, watching online, or wherever you may be, has the ability to do this. Because I see God so much in each one of you, and I know God would be dancing around in heaven because you went out and represented him as an ambassador and brought someone to him that he's been waiting for. Now, I don't want to keep you from doing your amazing new job, so let me pray for you all. God, I thank you today for giving each one of us the opportunity to be up here and sing and preach your word. I pray to you today that you help guide these amazing people and show them the path that glorifies you and brings them to eternal life through you. I pray that you are with each and every one of us today as we go out and every day in being ambassadors of Christ. I, ask you, I also ask you today that you be with the people who are looking at the party from the outside, desperately wanting to go in. Bring them the strength to open the door and go through the threshold and have the time of their lives. I pray all this in your name. Amen.